order to do that job, but in reality, we know those resources don't belong to us. When we get confused about that, it's called embezzlement, so we don't want to do that. But they don't belong to us. We simply use those tools, those resources, to do what we are here to do in the job. Now, others of you are employers, so uh, let's look at it from that perspective. Let's say you're a painter, for example. Not that I know any painters, but just for example, let's say you're a painter. Uh, you provide your team with all they need to do the job, including just the right brushes kept in good condition. Now imagine you show up at, at the job site and you find one of them using your good brushes to clean off their dirty boots. And another one of them is sweeping up a mess on the floor with your brushes. Let's have that in our minds. Let's get that picture in our minds as we look through the text. Let's read it together. Now we'll see with this our core reality. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 15. We'll, we'll look at the rest of chapter 16 later on, but we can't fit it all in today, so we're going to just take this piece. Starting with verse 1, Luke records it this way. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was, accu uh, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each, of his each one of his men. I'm going to try that again. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. That's better. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. In case you missed it, I'm going to read that again because it, it might have slipped by you. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Jesus continues, For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one and serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, 
but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today, we ask that you would add your blessing to its reading, to its study. Father, we ask that you would open our minds and our hearts to what you have for us in the the very words of your word. We thank you for the knowledge that every word of Scripture from beginning to end is breathed out by you, chosen by you to be here for us. And it is useful, practical, and everything that we need to grow and be transformed into the likeness of your Son. Lord, Help us now to set aside everything that might distract us. Everything that might keep us from being able to receive what you have. Unquestionably, as we gathered this morning, many are coming with burdened hearts. Many are coming battling fears and doubts. Father, so often these things can weigh us down and keep us from being able to actually hear your voice. Right now, in this moment, by the authority of your Son, Jesus Christ, we ask that you would calm our hearts, that you would clear our minds, so that we don't hear the voice of the enemy whispering lies to us, we don't hear the cry of our own heart, our flesh, our earthly nature, pushing to have its way. Father, strip away from us the tendency to lean on our own understanding and help us now in this moment as we open your word, as we engage with you personally, to trust you with our whole hearts. No holding back, no hedging. Father, as we open and we read and we learn, help us to submit to surrender our every way to you, trusting that you will handle the results. We give this moment to you. We give this day to you. We give our wealth and resources to you. Father, we give our very lives to you. Help us to keep that commitment. This we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Our core reality for today is that God gives earthly resources as tools to build His kingdom. God gives earthly resources as tools to build His kingdom. Just so we're all on the same page, let's say it together. God gives earthly resources as tools to build His kingdom. As we work through this parable, we're going to see this come to life. Now, this is a little bit... uh, more uncomfortable, a little more itchy and scratchy perhaps than the the three parables we saw in the last chapter. It's continuing the conversation. Now Jesus is turning his attention to his disciples. And 
perhaps it's later, perhaps it's immediately following. Luke isn't really trying to be chronological in this. He's trying to build a foundation for our faith. But that doesn't matter. The chronology isn't the point. The point is that he's bringing all of this together and having looked at how we uh, view God and how God views us, he goes into this for those who belong to him. He's not talking to the crowds anymore. He's talking to those who have already chosen to follow him, those who have committed themselves to being his. And now, as he gets into this particular story, we're not actually told specifically that it's, that it's a parable. Jesus doesn't say it. Luke doesn't say it. So it might be actual events that he's recounting. In either case, the point remains. God gives earthly resources as tools to build his kingdom. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this parable, I had to read it a few times. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, are you saying that sketchy business practices are commendable? Because I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, we know Jesus well enough by this time to recognize that he is without sin. He is Lord. He is actually fully man, fully human, but he is also fully God. We've been seeing that identity established and backed up through his character, integrity, practices, and his teaching throughout the book of Luke. Now here, it seems like Jesus is saying it's okay for this guy to cheat his boss. That's not what he's saying. What Jesus is pointing out in this is not the fact that the manager praised him for being dishonest, but that the manager, despite his being dishonest, praised his shrewdness. We'll talk about that word in just a moment. Praised his shrewdness. In other words, this manager, seeing what was coming, and it wasn't good, took advantage of the opportunity that he had to prepare for the future. So he used his position, he used this opportunity to be wise and purposeful and intentional. If he had continued on the path that got him in trouble in the first place, then when he found himself out of a job, he would have also found himself out of house and home, out of food, out of money, out of luck. So here... This guy, having squandered, or at least being accused of squandering his master's resources, gets called to account. And the master says, listen, I put you in charge. What am I hearing? You're squandering my assets. That's when it says, wasted his possessions. That word that is translated possessions there is the same we see translated money at the end of the, of the passage. It has to do with resources, has to do with assets. And so the manager is being accused of just doing whatever, being careless, going along, doing the job, picking up his paycheck, not really engaged. It doesn't say he was cheating him. He may have been. It doesn't say he was spending these things on himself. He may have been. But what we know for sure is he was wasting. He was squandering. He was careless. He wasn't doing the job he was given. He wasn't focused on making the most of his opportunity to work for the master. Now, as we walk through this today, we're going to see this core reality come out in it. Jesus is calling his disciples to be wise, to be 
shrewd. That word that's translated shrewd here in the, uh, in the NIV elsewhere is rendered wise. The connotation of the word is purposeful, intentional, thoughtful, has a, a feeling of skilled, but there is an impact in it that is bigger than just where we might normally think of shrewdness. So you can put the word wise in there and you'd be pretty well on to what we're talking about. Jesus is saying, as you do your business, whatever that business is, whether we're talking about your actual workplace or talking about going through life in general, you need to have your head on straight, your eyes focused on the mission, and work for the one who hired you. In this case, he's speaking specifically of the Father God. God gives earthly resources as tools to build his kingdom. Now, they're really his tools, but he lets us use them, and he expects us to use them for his purposes. God expects and rewards wise management of his resources. He's pleased when we use our earthly resources to promote his heavenly agenda. This is what Christ followers are commanded to do. And earthly wisdom brings eternal rewards. Now, as we're doing this, just like in our workplace, the resources we have are not ours. And we have to give an account for what we do with them. If you happen to be in charge of the arms room in a military installation, you have to have a regular inventory. If you're the manager of a retail store, you regularly have to have an inventory. You have to have an account of what's going on there. The resources your boss has entrusted to you, the things that you are responsible for, you have to at some point be accountable for. To show that you're actually doing what you're supposed to be doing. God entrusts us with them for a reason. And we have to use the resources for that reason. Mark this down on your program. God entrusts earthly resources to us for a season and for a reason. God entrusts earthly resources to us for a season and for a reason. In other words, they're not ours to keep. God can recall them at any time. He owns it all. He allows us to use it, and he allows us to use it for the purpose of doing a job. When he gives us a paintbrush, it's not to clean our boots with. It's to paint with. And if I use it for my own purposes, however I see fit, then I'm not doing what I was called to do. I'm not using the resources for the purpose for which it was given. Now, recently a friend of mine said to me very wisely, we need to put the soul back into capitalism. That's absolutely right. That's what we're talking about here. We need to make sure that whatever we are doing, when we're talking about these resources, we, are, we may be talking about money. He clearly is in this particular case. But it's bigger than that. We might be talking about our time, our abilities, our skills, our education, our family, our relationships, our physical ability, our ability to speak and communicate. All of these things are assets that sometimes we act as if we own them. Like somehow it's me, it's, it's mine. But it's not about me. I've been given tools to do a job. He gives us these things. He entrusts them to us for a time, for a season. 
and with his intent, with a specific purpose. The purpose is to build his kingdom. The purpose is to glorify God. That's how we fulfill what we were created for. Every single one of us was made for the express purpose of a relationship with God in perfect intimacy that shines a spotlight on who he is. Here at Real Life, we word it this way, that we exist to reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. I don't know that there's a better passage of Scripture to illustrate that. Jesus is saying, God gives you these things for a time, for a purpose. Now use them wisely, purposefully, intentionally. He even goes so far as to say, use your money, use your wealth, use what you've got to win friends for yourselves, to build relationships, so that through these relationships... We can do what we are meant to do. God entrusts earthly resources to us for a season and for a reason. God calls us to use these earthly resources on earth for the good of those around us. You don't have your wealth just for you. You don't have your home just for you. We're called to hospitality. You don't have your family just for you. We don't think about our family as a resource. But God has given us that. Your marriage isn't just for you. It's not so that you can be happy. If you do it right, happiness comes. Man, if you do it wrong, it's the worst kind of unhappiness, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. But the reality is God gives us that. He entrusts us with the gift of marriage so that we can use it for his purposes, to illustrate his relationship to his people. If you're not clear on that, take a look at Ephesians 5. You don't have to turn there now, but you can check it out on your own. Ephesians 5, uh, 21 to about 33 or so, gives a very clear expression of the drama that plays out, the stage play that God intends for marriage to be for the man and wife to express, to illustrate to the world the picture of what God looks like in relationship to his people. That's why the devil really loves it when we get this wrong. That's why we see such a battleground over the nature of marriage, over the nature of sexuality, over the nature of family. Because God has a purpose for it, and man, the devil really wants to mess that up. It becomes blasphemy. When we do marriage, sexuality, and family wrong, we are distorting the picture of who God is. And we're using His resources for purposes that actually give Him a bad reputation. They portray Him as somebody that He's not. God calls us to use our earthly resources on earth for the good of those around us. Note this. Here comes your alliteration. We wield worldly wealth so that our winsome wisdom will win the watching world. We wield worldly wealth so that our winsome wisdom will win the watching world. Sometimes I embarrass myself with this, but it was the one place that just it came together, so I had to throw it in. But this is the purpose. How we handle what has been entrusted to us, whether money or time or talents, education, etc., 
has a direct impact on how others view God and whether they are drawn to Him. If I am a very astute business person, but I engage in shady practices, and I have a ton of success, but I oppress the poor, I have a ton of success, but I kind of shade the truth a little bit, or I overpromise and underdeliver. Every part of that gives the people around me an image of who God is. Let that sink in for a moment. When you show up to work, it doesn't matter if you are a, a president of a corporation, a secretary, a janitor, whatever it is that you're doing, when you show up, the level of excellence and the level of commitment that you show is a demonstration to the world of what God is like. If people don't like doing business with you, you really think they want to hear about your God? You think they're interested in the gospel of your Jesus? Because if you look like Jesus in that, heck no, I'm better off with the world. But if, on the other hand, you are excellent, it doesn't mean you're the most gifted, but you are the most committed to excellence. Whatever you do, you're going to work at it with all your heart as if you're working for the Lord and not for human masters. And you give your all to it. Whatever it is, if you're digging ditches, you have the best-looking ditches, period. Can't get better, because I'm going to commit myself to doing my best. I'm going to show up for work on time. I'm going to make sure that I don't cut out early. I'm not going to take things that don't belong to me. I'm not going to try to puff myself up so that I can advance. I want to glorify God through my job. In doing this, people say, man, what's wrong with them? That dude's weird. He keeps showing up for work on time. And even when the boss is a jerk, he, he doesn't react badly. Wow, she's not getting credit, but she's still doing so much of the work. She's committed to doing her best. I want to know more about this. Why is that? When we do excellent things, when we give our best, when we wield worldly wealth wisely then we provide opportunities to build relationships that are winsome, that will win people, draw them, attract them to the God who made us the way we are. Listen, that doesn't mean you know, we should all be you know, fluffy, happy, shiny people, right? And we're all going to go to work, and if you're an employer or a boss, you're just going to overlook everything that everybody does when they don't do a good job. That's not it at all. God doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't ever at any point come to any sinner and say, it's all good, man. I just love you so much. Just keep doing what you're doing. No, he says, listen, I love you. God loves you. Get your head out of your pocket and get to work. Stop sinning. He always says this. I love you. You're forgiven. Now knock it off. Get right. And then... He walks with us. As employers, as supervisors, managers, whatever leadership position you're in, parents, since it's Mother's Day, moms, you're the boss, right? Everybody say amen. So <laughs> when you're in that situation where you are responsible for someone else, do not lower your standards 
in order to be winsome. Because it isn't. It makes you spineless. If you want to win someone, keep to the standard, but do it in a loving manner. Do it in a way that doesn't say, you're such an idiot. Why did I even hire you? Sometimes I wish I didn't even have kids. That's not winning anybody. Listen, this behavior, this choice, that's not acceptable. We're not doing that again. If that happens, here's how this is going to end. Just like the master says to the, to the foolish manager, you can't have this job anymore because you didn't do the job. As Jesus says to so many people, go and sin no more. But listen, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm going to show you how to do this. Maybe we're not understanding ourselves. Well, I want to make sure that you get it. It's not that you're not a valuable individual, but we're talking about doing a job. You've got to do the job. When we're talking about using our worldly wealth, all the resources we're talking about, not just financial wealth, but all that makes us us in this world, the things that we have, that we hold in our hands, that we hold in our hearts, that God allows us to use, we have to wield them in such a way that the wisdom with which we wield them draws attention in an attractive way in a winsome way. So that the world around us, who is watching us, believe me, you are being watched all the time. All of us are being watched all the time. You will be an example. You will be a role model. The question is, will you be a good one or a bad one? Will you be winsome, or will you drive people away from Jesus by your example? We need to win a watching world. How we handle what's been entrusted to us, whether we're talking about money or other stuff, has a direct impact on how others view God and whether they are drawn to Him. Now, in light of this, the next point isn't surprising. So, God gives us earthly resources as tools to build His kingdom. We recognize that He entrusts earthly resources to us only for a season and always for His reasons and we wield worldly wealth so that our winsome wisdom will win the watching world. And knowing that, recognize this. Earthly choices carry eternal significance. Earthly choices carry eternal significance. I may have mentioned once or twice before, my choices determine my destiny. That is true in a very real lasting and eternal sense. There is a connection between how we live now, how we handle our business, so to speak, and eternity. God holds eternal rewards for us based on our stewardship here. To connect it to the passage, I might substitute that word stewardship with the word shrewdness. Our intentional purposeful wisdom in handling what he has given us. God holds eternal rewards for us based on our stewardship here. Now this isn't connected to our salvation. That's not performance-based, although our stewardship does naturally follow our changed heart. 
It changes our perspective. And if it doesn't change our perspective, then we haven't had a change of heart. Repentance is part of faith. If you don't repent, if you don't change your path, stop pursuing your thing, start pursuing God's thing, then you really haven't repented because that's the nature of it. And you don't have Christ. You're not in Him. There is no salvation. There's no justification apart from repentance. So our our stewardship does naturally follow our changed heart. And it's also a clear measure of our discipleship. In other words... The more uh, I steward well, the better I do at using my stuff, which isn't my stuff, for God, because it's His stuff, so I want to use it for His purposes. The better I do at that, the more I look like Christ. So it's an indicator of how much I'm growing, how much I'm being transformed. It doesn't mean I'm not saved if I do it poorly, because, let's be honest, we all do it kind of poorly. We're at maybe at different levels of poor, but... We tend to not be so great at it. We tend to be selfish. But that progress, that improvement, that commitment to doing it, even when I fail, you know what? I blew it. I'm not giving up. I'm going to keep on going because he is worth more than that. He is worth more than my quitting. He matters. When I do that, it's an indicator of my discipleship but it isn't connected to my salvation. Salvation is by faith alone, by grace. If we could get it right on our own, we wouldn't need grace. Jesus wouldn't have needed to die. We can't. Therefore, we need to die to ourselves, to nail ourselves to the cross, so to speak, to use that same imagery. As Paul says to the Romans... We need to make ourselves living sacrifices. He died for us, therefore we live for Him. I'm not going to get it right. I'm going to keep crawling off the altar. So I get back on. And I crawl off again. i got to get back on. I need to make sure that I am choosing over and over and over again the things that honor God because my earthly choices have an eternal significance. If I blow it, He's not saying, Oh, that's too much. Yes, they're not coming. I got this party going, but you're not invited anymore. That's not how it works. But he does have rewards for you. If you can think, perhaps, and I'm going to, this may be a little too crass for some of you, so indulge me for just a moment. If you can think of this as sort of a commission sales job, you don't lose your job when you hit the minimum, but you make more when you sell more. Right? You get more commission coming in. That's how it works. You don't get fired if you're meeting the minimum, but you don't make as much as you could. Our eternal rewards are a little bit like that. We have the relationship that can never be undone. Once we have given ourselves to Christ, we have received Him, and He has changed us. We are now reborn. He says He's changed our identity. So we're no longer part of the kingdom of darkness. Now we're part of the kingdom of light. That's not based on me. That's based on him. I received the gift. Everything else is in his hands. From that point on, we're in. Some folks might call that spiritual fire insurance. If you want to sit there with your spiritual fire insurance and you're okay with that, then you might really question whether you actually are committed. It doesn't change whether you're committed, but you might question it. Because your priorities don't line up with his. 
But if I start to value what he values, the things that God thinks are important become important to me. The things that God hates become things that I hate. And even when I see them in myself, I see that. How could I be like that? I might still do it. I might still struggle with it. I might still fall into the same pit. But I just can't let myself give up and stay there. I know there's more. So I want to make the choices that will bring, if you'll indulge me, a greater commission once I get there. There is a connection between how we live now, how we handle our business, and what God has in store for us in eternity. Understand that God rewards in heaven our faithfulness on earth. One such blessing, one aspect of the reward, I think, is reflected here in the passage. Uh, Excuse me. In verse 9, he says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. This is an interesting piece. So he clearly isn't talking about buying up just popularity, because he's saying something eternal. And it's clearly not talking about buying our way into heaven. That doesn't make any sense. doesn't fit anything else in Scripture. It's not talking about earning our way in. Again, contrary to everything else that Jesus has ever said. But it says we want to win these friends so that they can welcome us into eternal dwellings. I take that to, to mean that these are folks that are going to be there. We win them to God's grace. They are converted to Christ. They are reborn and saved. And when we get to heaven, they're ready to party. They're welcoming us to this eternal home. Saying, hey, thank you so much for introducing me to Jesus. What a great, lasting, eternal reward. Earthly choices carry eternal significance. Now, if you've ever had two different people giving you orders, <laughs> you already recognize the truth of what Jesus says here in verse 13. Let's read it. No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I hope this doesn't hit too close to home, but I hope it hits close enough to home. Some of you here, many of you here, have been in broken homes, divorced homes, whether as the child or as the parent, and you know the difficulty that can come when there's conflict between the parents. Some of you grew up in a home where the mom and dad were there all the time and still had that same conflict between the parents. Mom says one thing, dad says another. Who's in charge? I don't know. And kids are really good at playing one against the other, aren't they? Parents, don't they they do that a lot? Kids will come and say, well, mom said it's okay with you. If it's okay with you, it's okay with her. But mom didn't really quite say that. So then I say that, okay, then it's fine. Well, mom, dad said it's okay. Why? He said what? There's no way that's okay. And we have conflict. We can't serve two different Masters, We can't go in two different directions. We're going to have this constant struggle. 
If you've been in the military or at work or on a uh, sports field and you have coaches or, or employers or supervisors uh, or uh, you know, superior officers, NCOs that are telling you different things that are in conflict with one another, you end up caught in the middle. And whatever you do, you're going to get yelled at. And whatever you do, you're going to feel like I messed up. You're going to be tense. They're going to be tense. It's all bad. Here's the bottom line. There can only be one boss. Now, maybe that doesn't sound real spiritual to you, but that's, that's the point he's making here. There can only be one boss. This is why it's important for parents to not undermine one another before the kids. Have a, what we might call a unified front. Now, you can sort it out backstage. You can sort it out after the kids are done. But we have to be together. The unity of leadership is more important than the issue at hand. We can always correct. We can always fix it later if we're together. If we're leading the church, the overseers here together speak as a council, as a board, not individual voices, together, unified. Because if we start splintering and everybody starts doing their own thing, the conflict is inevitable, the efficiency is shot, the effectiveness is shot, and God is not glorified. There can only be one boss. Now, in verse 13, the word that's translated money here in the NIV, uh, if you have an older translation uh, or uh, even some other newer translations, it's probably rendered mammon, which is basically a transliteration of the Greek. The Greek word mammon here. Um, is used elsewhere in the passage. We're going to see it even in the very next verse. In fact, you can take a look at that with me in verse 14. So, verse 13 we see, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. The Pharisees, who loved mammon, heard all this, <clears throat> excuse me, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. You know, I misspoke there. That's actually, that's not the same as mammon. Uh, that particular uh, translation in 14 should be the same as what we see in verse 1. Speaking of assets, I, I have a mistake in my notes here. So as we're, uh, as we're looking at this, Jesus is using this term mammon specifically. Same connotation, it's the same, same uh, basic meaning as the... Uh, the other word, the huparko, that, that is translated uh, wealth or possessions there. But while it's talking about resources in both, possessions, wealth, all of those things, mammon has this additional weight of personification. He uses it here to be a personification of all kinds of wealth as the god, small g, of materialism. His point here is pretty clear. We can't serve both our materialism, our sense of ownership, wealth, power, comfort, and security, and God. One of them's going to call the shots. And I don't have to have money, I don't have to have a lot of wealth to do that. But when my pursuit, my values are on earthly things, then I get trapped in that materialism. I'm serving mammon. 
When I think that things are external here in this world, and that's the primary key, then I'm getting my mind set on focused on mammon. Mammon. My mouth is just not functioning today. But God has an entirely different set of values. We need to make sure that we recognize that there can only be one boss. These two masters, God and materialism, are at odds with one another. In fact, in the book of James, it says that friendship with the world, embracing the world's values, thinking like the world, fitting in with the world, which includes serving mammon, that's actually enmity with God. It's hatred toward God. Because you're going in two different directions. The things of this world are not in themselves valuable. They become valuable in what they're used for. In fact, that moves us into our next point. When we see our tools through worldly eyes, and that's all these things are, tools, used to build God's kingdom, when we begin to value them highly as our own possessions, we make them into idols. God doesn't hate money, influence, power, or giftedness. He gave them to us. And ultimately, he owns them. They're his. God doesn't hate his own tools. But sometimes he really hates how we use them. Here's the point. God doesn't hate wealth. He hates idols. God doesn't hate wealth. He hates idols. That's what Jesus says to the Pharisees here. 14, the Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. That word sneering literally means in the Greek, turning up their noses at him. He said to them, you're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. We set our eyes on things. Unrighteous mammon or as the King James might render it, filthy lucre. Some of you remember growing up with a term like that. Peter and Paul both used that term. Filthy lucre. When we start to see things of this world as inherently valuable, when we start to value them as if they belong to us, it doesn't matter what it is. Your money, your job, your time, your education, your reputation, your children, your spouse, your own comfort, your happiness, your sense of fulfillment, your rights. When we see these things as innately, inherently valuable, then we make them into idols, and God detests idols. Take a little trip through the Old Testament. Take a look at what God does to idols. It doesn't end well for the idol. So if I idolize things of this world, if I value them highly in opposition to how God sees them, I see God's tools and I think they're mine and how awesome am I that I've got these great tools. Super me, super valuable tools. God says, man, I love those tools. I gave you those tools to do a job. Hate them so much, I'm going to destroy them all. I'm going to burn up the tools. That's what happens to idols. There is nothing in my life 
that I love that I want to turn into God's enemy. I love my wife more than I love my own life. But if for one second I allow her to become more important to me than God or his purposes, his agenda, then she becomes an idol and I put her in jeopardy. I put her at risk because I make her God's enemy. If I do that with my children, if I do that with this church, if this becomes just about this, rather than God's working here, God's tools, God's resources to be able to build his kingdom, then all of this, the ministry, the building, it all becomes an idol. Do we really want the things that we love to turn into things that God hates by the way we abuse them and misuse them for our own purposes instead of his? So much more to say on that topic. Just going to let it ride. God doesn't hate wealth. He doesn't hate your ability. He doesn't hate your education. He hates idols. God gives earthly resources as tools to build his kingdom. Now, as we wrap this up, understand that everyone has resources, whatever those resources might be. Some have little, some have much. Whether it's money, influence, talent, time, whatever it is, we must view our resources as tools for the building of God's kingdom. When we see them any other way, we make them idols. We make them detestable in God's sight. May we, individually and together, be known as those who value what God values and who use well the tools that he gives us to do well the work that he gives us. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, help us not to waste your resources. Make us wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Give us the right kind of shrewdness. Help us as Christ followers not to run away from wealth or success, not to value it so highly as to even think it's something to avoid. Father, help us not to chase it as an end in itself, but help us to work hard, to be smart, to be consistent, to be excellent, so that we can, by all the means you give us, amass a deep and well-stocked tool bench. Father, fill our toolboxes with resources that we can use as tools to build your kingdom and protect us from the temptation to ever think any part of it is ours to use for our own purposes. Father, even our recreation, help us to enjoy entertainment and rest
purposefully, intentionally, in a way that honors you and that attracts others to you. Let us think in every moment, is this the very best thing I could be doing for the kingdom of God? Make us good stewards, Lord. Lord, pray that you would help us to wield your every blessing in a way that might win some soul and save them from hell. Take our lives. Let them be consecrated to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.